entering the Freedom Hut. Well, the socialist extravaganza continued with night two of the Democrat debates. We'll break down all the craziness on health care, the border, you name it, and attacks on Obama. Oh, my. Plus, looks like Comey's going to escape justice, even though they know that he is shady. We'll get into that and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to The Buck Sexton Show, coming to you live from Los Angeles, California. Out here on the left coast, the west coast, oh my, in preparation for a little appearance on uh, real-time HBO tomorrow night. Looking forward to that. It's going to be me. It's going to be a fellow named Josh Barrow, who I'm not particularly familiar with, and uh, Jennifer Granholm, former governor of the state of Michigan. So we're going to have a chat. That's going to be fun. We've had chats before at CNN. Those have been lively. So we're going to have a great time discuss tomorrow night, and then, of course, Bill Maher hosting Oh, and Marianne Williamson, she's going to show up and she's going to explain to me that my inner spirit, if only the proper crystals are waved above my head, will allow me to completely and utterly transform America. That's right. All you need is some healing crystals. Marianne doing her thing. Uh, And then there's that other guy who, uh, Bennett. You know, we had the debates last night, and some of the stuff that I, I latched onto was not... We're going to dive into the policy. I got Ovik Roy joining us later in the show. I'm going to ask Ovik all the questions about healthcare that you would ever need to know or ask to understand everything that's going on in the Democrat debates. So we're going to give Ovik a nice, long uh, lead time to explain things in the third hour, because he's, he's a healthcare super nerd in the best ways, so he'll, he'll walk us through all that. One of my other favorite things was this guy, uh, Bennett. Uh, Senator Bennett from Colorado. You know, he really sounds kind of like his character from South Park. And you listen to him, he's like, you know, we did this in my state, and we did. My, Producer Mike, do we have any Bennett audio? I don't, I don't see it. But if we do, just by just for way of comparison, we should throw that in the mix. You know, I just think the climate change is just gonna like destroy the whole world. So <laughs> yeah, he was okay. I'll take some off. He was a. Uh... Yeah, can you can you grab some so we can just see how much just dispo- because I think my Marianne Williams is getting pretty good too, folks. That's right. There's a dark psychic force overtaking America. <laughs> She's awesome. She might be an alien. She is entertaining, folks. She's entertaining. Let's be honest. But oh my, the crazy last night, the crazy that was on display. It is hard to overstate these Democrats. They do not. They do not know what they are doing to themselves over the uh, long run. I mean, just some of the some of the top lines I had from this. Every time one of them says they want to decriminalize the border, I'm like, oh, this is practically an in-kind donation to Trump 2020. Decriminalize the border? That's an o- Folks, that's an open border, okay? They can keep trying to move the goalposts and everything else. If it is no longer a criminal offense to enter U.S. sovereign territory without legal permission, that's an open border. That's what that is. You, you can try it. And by the way, there's no other country in the world that takes the position that we do of just show up and walk in and we'll give you the equivalent of a parking ticket. Who's going to go through the legal? Uh, 
I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. We'll dive into this. Who's going to go through the legal immigration process if you can just walk into America and pay a, pay a fine? You, or you can wait years and years, go through all, maybe not even ever get picked, maybe not actually successfully get through the immigration process, pay thousands of dollars of legal fees to, to immigration attorneys possibly, or you can just walk into America across the U.S.-Mexico border and, you know, t- take your, your parking ticket. Do pass, go, do collect $200, you're good to go. They were just saying absolutely crazy stuff last night on that debate stage. And I was looking around like, this, this cannot be real. I mean, on health care, Bernie Sanders is just straight up living in a fantasy land. Uh, on the border, they are now for open borders. And I think that's their Achilles heel. Because, look, the Republicans aren't great on, on health care. I'm not going to sit here and, and carry water for them. What is the Republican plan, folks? I ask you this in, good, in, in all honesty. They don't know. How could you know? They don't know. Got a huge election here. You know, the, the only problem with Americans right now is we're getting a little too uh, a little too soft and happy, I think, with a really strong economy, deregulation, you know, n- no no crazy social initiatives jammed down our throats by this for the social justice warriors amusement, at least not by the administration. Uh, no, no wars started unnecessarily. I, mean, I, I do worry that the American people now you know, we've had a few years of, oh, th- this is. It's like, a, it's like adults are running things. You could say that you think that Trump sometimes is immature on, the, on Twitter or whatever, but the policy results, it feels like adults are running things. It doesn't feel like the faculty lounge at Wesleyan or Oberlin or Reed. Those are the most left-wing schools I could think of off the top of my head. Uh, pretty good list. doesn't feel like they're running everything, and people with no connection to economics, business, rule of law are just making it up as they go along. And I worry that because we're experiencing this, we might get a little complacent. Then the American people in general are like, oh, everything will be fine. Yeah, let's try a little more socialism. Let's see how that, let's give it a little dabble, see how that goes. I mean, last night, there were so many things. The anti-cop sentiment, which I'll spend a little more time on later, was disgusting. Democrats should be ashamed of themselves. I mean, among, if you're going to tell me, if you're going to lecture me as the Democrats have for two years about how uh, our institutions are so critical to this country and institutions uh, like like the FBI and how dare anyone criticize Comey, who's a partisan hack, Mueller, who was used as a false front for the investigation and an anti-Trump partisan, Brennan, who is an Obama partisan. I mean, you go down this list, you criticize any of them and you're undermining institutions. Meanwhile, law enforcement, cops across the country doing a legitimately difficult and dangerous job and making this country for all of our faults, for all of our problems, quite safe in the grand scheme of things. I mean, just compare us to some of our southern neighbors, folks. I mean, you want to live, you want to live in America or you want to live in Brazil? Murder rate per capita, s- several times ours. You know, we, our, our law enforcement is unbelievably, on, on the grand scale of things, unbelievably professional. And decent. They're part of us. They're our community. I've got law enforcement in my family. I worked for the NYPD. Many of you listening are active law enforcement. They just, the Democrats just trash cops like they're nothing. Trash cops like they're a bunch of, you know, one moment they've got the, the, sh- the shield and the gun on, the next moment they're putting on a KKK hood. I'm not exaggerating. They really think the cops are horrible racists. 
Tulsi Gabbard, who I'm inclined to generally be favorably disposed towards, and some of you are going to make fun of me for that, but that's fine. We cannot help who we are. Uh, But she said that Trump was supporting Al-Qaeda last night and people were clapping. What? Supporting Al-Qaeda? It's completely insane. But this is, what you realize is that they're fighting over the most fervent and crazy left-wing activists, media voices, and so the the connection to to normal Americans is, is tenuous at best. I mean, the stuff that they're talking about was completely nuts. But if there was one takeaway, I know we talked about the debate from the night before already, so I'll try not to focus too much on the socialism versus, I don't even think it's socialism versus liberalism. It's really socialism versus math. That was debate night number one. Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, he's just as bad as they are, by the way. She has fancy degrees. Fancy degrees, sometimes it can be meaningful. Most of the time it's not. Uh, Night one was socialism versus math. Last night... It was really Bernie versus, I mean, uh, Biden versus the mob. And they were just all coming at Biden. And I will say, I think he did a pretty good job defending his turf. I, I don't just come in. It, it loses its meaning, right? If, if everything I do is just, oh, I don't like this person, so they're terrible, and everything I do is terrible. Of course not. Got to call balls and strikes. Got to be honest in the analysis. I thought that Biden did a pretty solid job of standing his ground last night. But what was amazing was because of that and because of the ferocious progressivism that is the motivating force of the left-wing base now because they're just so the trump derangement syndrome has spread so far and wide they they turned on obama's legacy in a way that i will say was somewhat jaw-dropping even for me watching this as a conservative who thinks that obama did a terrible job on a whole number of fronts but if i were a democrat i would not going after Obama's legacy, I'd be saying, here's a guy who, look, you compare Obama to, and I, now I know some of you, I'm, I'm on dangerous ground, you're telling you that Obama was, was a skilled and gifted politician, but he was. He won two elections, president for eight years, ran through Obamacare. He had bad judgment. He had poor decision making, but in terms of getting himself elected, guy just kept, you know, let's be honest. I mean, all, all election wise, all he did was win. One after another. And there, that clown car of Democrats from last night of the night, last night was the one that really came up. They're throwing the Obama legacy under the bus. It was amazing to see, but it's just there's so much desperation to try to chip away at Biden's lead and Biden's unassailable poll advantage so far that, that they were talking about how, and it, and it was on some stuff that was, it's not just on the you know insufficiency of Obamacare. Uh, but they were going after him, particularly on immigration and deportations. There were some crowd uh, interruptions last night. One was over how they want uh, Officer Pantaleo to be fired, who was the individual who put Eric Garner in a chokehold. I do think if we're going to talk about that case, people need to... He did not die from asphyxiation. He died from a heart attack. So that is that is an essential detail that gets left out of this conversation because they say he died because he got put in a chokehold he died of a heart attack because he got put in a chokehold which is a different thing uh not to say that everything that went down in that circumstance was the way that the you know police procedure should have gone i've had some officers i'll be i'll tell you i've had some officers who said that you know you can't put that high chokehold on them i've had others who said look 
you're you're wrestling a guy down who won't go down in the street, who said he won't go down. Things are going to get rough, and they didn't choke him out to death. They were choking him. Uh, one officer was choking him, and then he had a heart attack. But they were screaming about how they want, you need to fire Pantaleo. And then they also were screaming about, I believe, I, I listened to it last night, and then I, I listened to it again this morning, uh, the deporter-in-chief stuff about Obama, that Obama, the Obama administration deported people. Now, I've always said that that was, that was a, a savvy political move from the Obama administration's point of view because they got very close with complicit Republicans. Hello, Marco Rubio. There were a bunch of them very close to getting through a, an amnesty. And then once you get the amnesty through, then you can make whatever changes you want at the border because the Republican Party is effectively dead. Never win another election for the rest of our lives. So it was it was smart to, to create the perception of, oh, we see, we'll work with you. We're reasonable on the border. We will deport people. We'll do stuff. But give us the amnesty. And they got a lot of pressure. They got very close. Um, it, was a, it was a close fought battle for sure. But because of that, because the Obama administration did deport people and uh, was willing to at least put up a facade of being reasonable. Look, Obama, we've played the audio. Obama told people, don't come here. Don't bring your kids here. Obama was saying things on immigration that now Democrats, without batting an, without batting an eyelash, are saying is horribly racist for Republicans to say. And just in order to get after Joe Biden last night, they were trashing the Obama legacy. It was an amazing thing. Now, I think that this will all be long forgotten when we get a few debates down the road. And there's a whole conversation to be had, too, about whether debates even really matter. People, all the polling showed that Hillary beat Trump in the debates. The polling. I mean, I don't think that he, she did, but and Trump went on to win anyway. Mitt Romney annihilated Obama in the first debate in 2012. I mean, it was the biggest, the, the biggest butt kicking in a debate that I can ever remember. And people, look, Mitt... Mitt's become a Democrat, fine, but he did do a great job in that first debate. But the attack on Obama's legacy last night was, if nothing else, the strongest single data point and indicator that you can look to that this Democratic Party has completely lost its mind. Obama is not liberal enough for the Democratic Party of today in this primary. Obama is not progressive enough for these left-wing libs who would have thought that that's where we were heading even a few years ago but that is where we are so now that we've established that and you know there, there are democrats that i do think last night were uh, they were a little shocked and i know there's been some blowback about this you cannot you can't be a democrat and go after saint obama we'll break down some of the policy disputes some of the crazy stuff they said coming up in a moment here team so stay with me this is the fourth debate that we have had and the t- second time that we have been debating what people did 50 years ago with busing when our schools are as segregated today as they were 50 years ago. I mean, I just think that he kind of sounds a little bit like this. It's like, my name is Senator Bennett and I'm from Colorado and my eyebrow kind of moves funny when I get real excited and... You know, climate change, immigration, open borders, sounds good. Producer Mark, come on, right? It's it's pretty close. It's like a South Park character. He does. He sounds like a South Park character. I'm not the only one who thinks so. I'm telling you. People have, people have realized this. 
It's amazing to me the guy's a senator. He's one of these senators that no one knew about until he ran. I guess if you're from Colorado, you know about him. Oh, by the way, team, uh, somebody brought up today to me over coffee that I had not, uh, they said, hey, I haven't heard you take a phone call in a while. Guess what? We'll take some phone calls if you want. So it's really just a question of who's listening right now live and wants to light up those lines. That's right, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. When was the last time we even got to say the number on the air? I, I just, I, I love getting right to the, the issues and I get all excited and I guess I, I guard my time with you jealously and as much as I love to hear from all of you, we don't take that many calls here. So it's kind of a special thing when we do. Uh, but 844-900-2825. And if none of you call in, well, then I don't have to feel bad about not taking that many calls. So those of you who like like live calls, now, you know, it's it's now or never. You know, you do or you don't. Uh, the fish are coming with me. The fish are coming with me. Oh, since we're doing the Benedict, do we have Marianne Williamson? Play 23. Oh, we don't have it. All right, fine. Why don't we have it? Mary, I, I got to hear it again to be able to do it. Her, hers, sometimes it escapes me. Um, but she's she's an interesting lady. All right, so what are we going to talk about that's of of major importance in the world of policy next? I'm going to go through the craziest things that they said from the debate last night, all of which tell us something about the left-wing mind these days. And then we'll bust, uh, bust down some of the broader issues that they addressed. I mean, the, the one that I think... Look, here here's my sense of where this whole thing is going they have the advantage on health care and they're going to continue to unless republicans step it up unless trump steps it up and explains what is the deal here what is the plan and they have a huge liability on uh immigration there's no way that they are not going to be able to sell their nonsense open borders position to the middle of America that is going to be deciding this election in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, and Florida is not the middle, but you know what I mean. Uh, they're, they're not going to be able to do that. So I'm wondering, oh, and there was a really interesting moment between, I think Kamala Harris might have gotten brought down a level or two last night by Tulsi. You know, I mean, I, I like Tulsi and Yang. If I if I had to vote for somebody on the left, it would probably be Delaney, but Tulsi and Yang, I'd, I'd want to hang out with both of them. This is the betrayal to the American people, to me, to my fellow service members. We were all lied to, told that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, was working with al-Qaeda, and that this posed a threat to the American people. So I enlisted after 9-11 to protect our country, to go after those who attacked us on that fateful day, who took the lives of thousands of Americans. The, The problem is that this current president is continuing to betray us. We were supposed to be going after al-Qaeda, but over years now, not only have we not gone after al-Qaeda, who is stronger today than they were in 9-11, our president is supporting al-Qaeda. I mean, I'm usually willing to hear what Tulsi Gabbard, that's her last night of the debate, has to say on things. I, I agree with her that, you know, no more new wars, please. No more wars. No more wars of choice because someone thinks in a think tank somewhere that it's going to create a domino effect and a flourishing of democracy across the Muslim world. Let's let's not do that again. Those of you who are veterans, I think most of you listening to this who are veterans would would heartily agree with that sentiment. I would bet. I don't know, but uh, I think we, we we need to wait until the next war comes to us, which will happen at some point. But we don't need to go looking for projects for our military abroad. We need to... Uh, 
refit, re-equip, rest, prepare. Prepare for the next one because I think the next one's going to be big and it's going to be against a country that actually has, you know, an air force and stuff like that. Not to get too far ahead of myself. But what Tulsi Gabbard said there was just, this is just this is nuts. Our president support President Trump supports Al-Qaeda. That's what she said on the debate stage. Did you see a lot of outrage about this? Could you imagine if somebody on, on the Republican debate got up there and said, or a Republican on a debate stage, Barack Obama openly supports Al-Qaeda. I, I don't think that that would have been allowed to pass as, as a thing that could be said. Uh, but let's just break this down real quick. I think what she was going for, or what she would say, and it's crazy. So there is no, that's a crazy thing to say. So that's why this is going in our crazy pile. And we got a whole big crazy pile to get through. Uh, but what she would say is that we're supporting Saudi Arabia. The Saudis are supporting the anti-Houthi resistance in Yemen and the Arabian Peninsula. And the anti-Houthi resistance includes some elements that are either AQAP tied or officially part of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Therefore, through the transitive property of supporting terrorists, we are supporting, uh, Trump is supporting Al-Qaeda. Uh, this is, if, if you want to make that the new standard, well then, just think about how much support of ISIS when they were you know, lopping off people's heads and letting them on fire, Barack Obama did by sending munitions and training and doing all these things for the for units that turned out to just be part of ISIS. I mean, would, would either flip, go to their side, or were ISIS all along? I mean, this is what was happening. The weapons were getting into their hands, the training. And we spent, I think it was $500 million in some Pentagon program to train a free Syrian army force. And they ended up training a total of, I believe, you have to check me on this, it was less than 10 guys. I think it was seven or something that were battlefield operational. The magnificent seven. Uh, so Tulsi, just that was wacko stuff. I did say we'd take some calls. The lines are open. The lines lit up like a Christmas tree when I said we'll take calls, so perhaps that's you guys sending me a message. 844-900-2825 if you want to call in. Let's get to uh, AJ down in Mobile, Alabama. AJ, what's up? Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Hey, Buck. Shields high, brother. Shields high, brother. How are you doing? All right, man. I try to catch you every evening on the way home. I, I, I think President Trump's doing an outstanding job. I think that... Uh, Democrats will slam off the rails, man. They're a bunch of idiots. And uh, I tell you, man, uh, this election's going to make or break this country. People better wake up and smell the coffee is all I can tell them. I, I co-sign on this election being very important, my friend. And uh, thank you so much, AJ, for calling from Mobile. Do appreciate it. Shields high to you. Jody in Salt Lake City. I haven't been out to Salt Lake in a while. How you doing, Jody? I'm doing great, Buck. Um, I have enjoyed you since the original Saturday squad, so... Oh, wow. O-S-S, Jody. Yes, sir. Um, I did not appreciate Andrew Yang's stanky, weasley little butt mansplaining me how he was going to pay me as a woman for unpaid work, because apparently I don't have the brains God gave room temperature lettuce to figure out how to live my life. Oh, I am not down with that at all. Yeah, this is when he was talking about unpaid work in the home, and this is his way of trying to justify his plan for the universal basic income, right? That women, essentially, who are in the home, because that work is unpaid, uh, the universal basic income would serve the purpose of pay. But that's not really even accurate, because if everyone's getting paid, you're not getting paid for being in the home, you're just getting paid for breathing. And frankly, I'm at 52 years old. I have figured out how to do things. And if I stopped thinking now, 
and being a productive human being, I am still light years ahead of his crappy little behind managing to come close to my baby finger. I got to tell you, Jody, it sounds like you are not joining the Yang Gang anytime soon. Uh, no. Not not part of the Yang Gang. All right, Jody, she'll tie. Thank you for calling in from Utah. She's not, she's not on Team Yang Gang. Yo, Producer Mike, you have to vote for a Democrat based on what we've seen so far. Have to. No, you know, no opt-out, no pass. Who you vote for? Uh, Delaney. It's easy. Delaney. Yeah. There yeah, we were. He's very Producer reasonable. Mark. Producer Mark, you are you are locked in. You cannot escape. We will hold you down until you vote for a Democrat. Who is it? I'm just going to make you angry and say Bill de Blasio. Oh, my gosh. Someone's going to get a code red. I'm not ordering the code red right now. I'm just saying if someone gets a code red, maybe they deserved it. Producer Mike. Uh, so, yeah. De Blasio. I, I, one thing I like about de Blasio is that everyone kind of joins in. Even Democrats join in on the de Blasio hate. They're like, well, this guy's a total clown. Why is he running? How, the, my favorite question about Bill de Blasio is, how did he become mayor of New York? Because people really are befuddled in, in a way that is, I don't know, you get into Anthony Weiner and the, you know, the Weiner photos and all that stuff. And, and that's how you, uh, that's how you, you figure it out. But, whew, it was a wild time. Um, oh, oh we're, we were talking about crazy. And there was a whole bunch of this stuff. Uh, for example, and I, I knew this was going to happen. Here we are in year three of the Trump presidency. And I don't think there's a human being out there. I don't think you could find one who would say that if the economy were really bad, Trump would not be blamed for that economy, right? We all know that. And, and, it, and if you said, well, Trump inherited a weak, you know, systemic weaknesses in the economy from Obama for his overspending and lack of blah, blah, you know, they, that would, you'd be laughed out of the room. Meanwhile, the economy is doing very well. By all metrics. And there was even an important piece in the Wall Street Journal, I think it was yesterday, talking about how wages, which have been stagnant for a long time, wages have actually gone up for working people. That's in real terms. You know, Americans have gotten a raise. Working people have gotten not just from the, not just the tax cut. This is real uh, economic growth in and, and wages uh, measuring that. Uh so that doesn't nearly get enough attention. But here we are now being told that, oh, that the really good economy, you can't you can't thank Trump for that. That's here's uh, Julian Castro making a case that I knew somebody would make, but I didn't think that. Well, no, I knew they'd do this, but it's hard to believe even when you're expecting it, that it's it's the Barack Obama economy, folks. Play clip one. There are a lot of Americans right now that are hurting. The idea that America is doing just fine is wrong. Not only that, this president always likes to take credit like he did this. We've now had about 105 straight months of positive job growth, the longest streak in American history. Over 80 months of that was due to President Barack Obama. Thank you, Barack Obama. Thank you, Barack Obama. You know what's a really fun a fun exercise when Democrats say this stuff? Uh you say, what did Barack Obama do? The stimulus? No one thinks the stimulus really did any of this, right? I mean, no one really believes that the stimulus saved the economy, do they? That's different from the bank bailout. That's a different thing. They often get conflated together. Well, what, what, did, what did Barack Obama do? Emergency measures? Things like uh, extending, uh, well, they increased food stamps by, I forget how, I think it was, I don't want to say, maybe six or seven million people under Obama's time. Um, they extended unemployment insurance. There were some things they did that were emergency measures. Uh, measures, measures speak 
English buck, you're a radio host. Um, but if you ask a liberal to explain to you why this would still be Obama's economy, and then you say, you ask them, if, if it were a bad economy, would it still be Obama's economy? They they never, it's like you've short-circuited the system. They never really can give you a, a real answer. Oh, wait, wait. Since we talked about de Blasio before and what a loon he is and how utterly and completely unlikable. Look, I'm going to be, de Blasio is about to be my mayor again. Within the next 30 days, de Blasio will be the mayor of the city I live in, which is a hard thing to fathom. Um, but here was de Blasio last, I mean, he just... I, I guess he figures he's got no chance of being president, really. So why not just give speeches that shore up his social justice warrior credentials? He's got the unions in his pocket that he needs in New York. He's got the the political machinery of New York City backing him. So he's I guess he thinks he can get away with being crazy. And at some level, he's right. So here's the kind of stuff that Bill de Blasio, formerly the Kaiser, Warren Wilhelm, Ron Wilhelm was his name, yeah? You remember. Guten Tag. Here he is. Play four. We can make change in this country. I know from personal experience it can be done. When I became the mayor of the nation's largest city, I set us on a path of bold change. They said it couldn't be done, but we gave pre-K to every child for free. We got rid of stop and frisk and we lowered crime. We raised the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Yes, it can be done. When I'm president, we will even up the score and we will tax the hell out of the wealthy to make this a fairer country and to make sure it's a country that puts working people first. That, my friends, is the unvarnished, pure class warfare at the heart of the Democratic Party's message. We will tax the hell out of the wealthy. Who's the wealthy, by the way? But put that aside for a moment. We're going to tax the hell out of Americans so that other people who are leftists, who are Democrat supporters and voters, will feel better about their situation. That's making it a fairer country. This was a sentiment that Obama himself expressed at one point. Even if it was going to hurt the economy, you got to raise taxes because it's the right thing to do. Even out the score. Push somebody down a little bit. Don't worry about pushing somebody else up. Don't worry about lifting everybody up. Push somebody else down who's gotten a little too too big. It's gone a little things have gone a little too well for them. This is a dangerous political sentiment. It creates a tremendous well, it really feeds off of a tremendous resentment and creates more resentment. And this is not just de Blasio's approach. This is now a mainstream feeling in the Democratic Party. Despite all the billionaires, the Hollywood celebrities, the super rich lawyers, the super rich Wall Street guys who are Democrats. There's tons of them, right? There's, you look at the, the, the biggest, wealthiest names in the country, most of them are Democrats, the ones that come to mind. You look at the, the Bloombergs and the Gates and the... Uh, go down. Steve, uh, what's I was going to say? Steve Jobs. Pardon me. Um, Amazon founder. Bezos. Bezos. Thank you. Look at all these big. I mean, they're all they're all they're all libs. But the millionaires and the billionaires, they're all Republicans, according to Bernie. I mean, this is just a this is a delusion. This is a story that liberals tell themselves at night as a, as a bedtime story that all the bad rich people are Republicans somehow. Meanwhile, who who delivered Trump his electoral victory? It was predominantly. White working class voters 
Who had voted for Obama before? And just were like, this isn't a good deal for us right now with this Democratic Party. We're going to do something else. Uh, we've got so much more. I've got to get into the uh, immigration stuff because, you know, that's very top of mind for me. We've just begun to scratch the surface of the crazy here. Uh, and then I've got some other stories to get to that are not, are not just debate-related. Um, the DOJ is saying that they will not prosecute Comey. That's a, uh, that's up today. And then also a story that I want to walk you through on whether police shootings are, in fact, racist or not. We'll get to that. Stay with me. The important number in Vice President Biden's remarks just now was that the United States is only 15% of global emissions. We like to act as if we're 100%, but the truth is, even if we were to curb our emissions dramatically, the Earth is still going to get warmer. And we can see it around us this summer. The last four years have been the four warmest years in recorded history. This is going to be a tough truth, but we are too late. We are 10 years too late. We need to do everything we can to start moving the climate in the right direction, but we also need to start moving our people to higher ground. And the best way to do that is to put economic resources into your hands so you can protect yourself and your families. What the heck is Yang talking about here? <laughs> that is quite a quite a move he pulls. He goes from, uh, it's too late, and we're only a portion of it. So, so he's right about some things. He's, Yang is smart enough to understand that no matter what we do, India, China, other developing, uh, other major developing economies, you know, Mexico, Brazil, big countries all over the world, they're not going to curb their emissions, no matter what they tell us. They're not going to put artificial constraints on their growth and their economy. There's no way. The Chinese, please. They could care less. I was in Beijing a few months ago. Let me tell you, they got no problem with smog over there. Lots of that getting pumped out of the smokestacks. So even if we listen to the Democrats, it's it's all for naught. But then he goes to the the problem is he understands that truth, and then he thinks that we need to start moving to higher ground. Like I, I've told you this before, I will change my tune on climate change the moment that somebody will sell me their beachfront. I'm here in Los Angeles. I'm taking. I'll, I'll take any offers, or rather, well, yeah, I guess it'd be an offer. Uh, somebody wants to sell me their beachfront Malibu property at a, at a fraction of the current market rate. I, I don't mean like, you know, a 10% markdown. I mean like 50. I still couldn't afford it, but I, I'd cobble together the money from, from investors because if you sold it to me at a 50% discount, you're crazy because the seas are not rising that much. It, this is not happening, folks. It's not happening. Yang understands that, it, that the people that are claiming we're going to have some glorious war against climate change, they don't even... Even if we did, if we accept the world as they view it, even if we did exactly what they want us to do, it would not matter using their own numbers, logic, and the parameters they've set up. This is how nonsensical the climate change catastrophists are. It won't make any difference. And yet here I am telling you this. Am I worried at all? No, I am not worried. It's all going to be fine. Mr. Yang over here, He's trying to tell the Yang gang to go to higher ground. Uh, I do not think it is time to sell your home and head to the top of the Rockies yet, folks. I think, although that might be kind of a nice view, I, I think we're all going to be just fine. Criminal justice, big criminal justice exchange that I want to get to with uh, Tulsi Gabbard and Kamala Harris. Did Tulsi kind of knock Kamala off the runner-up establishment post last night? We'll get to that. Criminal justice Flash last night on the Democrat debate stage. Very interesting stuff. 
So just by way of quick review, you remember Kamala Harris seemed to show that the Biden candidacy was not inevitable because she took Biden down quite a bit with her, I think, unfair attacks on him for uh, his position on busing. But we've dealt with that already on the show last night. There was a sense that there would be uh, a showdown between Kamala and Biden again. But it turns out the real showdown, well, everybody was trying to pile on Biden, but didn't they, didn't, they weren't successful. Biden had a good night, folks. I'm just being honest. He had a good night. Uh, that doesn't mean that he's out of the woods, but he definitely uh, held his turf. But Kamala and Tulsi tangled quite a bit. Here is Tulsi Gabbard, who... This was one of the most memorable. Look, this is Democrat on Democrat fighting, folks. What could be more entertaining? Here's Tulsi letting it be known that she does not agree with Kamala's previous uh, approach as a uh, state attorney in California. Play nine. Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and prosecutor president, but I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but... She put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. When you were in a position to make a difference and an impact in these people's lives, you did not. And worse yet, in the case of those who were on death row, innocent people, you actually blocked evidence from being revealed that would have freed them until you were forced to do so. There is no excuse for that. And the people who suffered under your reign as prosecutor, you owe them an apology. There is no excuse for that. Is that all true? Are all of those things that Tulsi Gabbard said about Kamala Harris true? I think we should know. I can tell you this. Kamala, from my sources in the lib media, of which I have quite a few, she's the favorite. Now, we we discussed how Jeff Zucker, who's giving orders to all the other commissars over at CNN on a regular basis, we discussed how Zucker had already come, come forward and presented Kamala as important for the entire country. So we, we know that there is an establishment desire to elevate Kamala, uh, establishment liberal desire in the media and in the on the coast for sure. And if Biden falters, Kamala is supposed to take the spot. I mean, you know, Booker would like to be, but nah, I don't see it. I don't, I just don't think Booker's, I don't think he's got it. First of all, he complained last night. The two funniest complaints from last night of all were, Cory Booker saying that this debate was pitting Democrats against each other. Yeah, dude, it's a debate among Democrats. Good call, Cory Booker. Uh, and then also uh, a few different. We don't. I don't think we have a montage of it handy, but there are a few different times when Democrats who felt like they were a little cornered. Well, that's a Republican talking point. Stop with the Republican talking points. Uh, well, shouldn't you, if it is a Republican talking point, shouldn't you have the answer for it? Because you're going to face a Republican eventually. That, that shouldn't be a get-out-of-jail-free card. Oh, that's a Republican talking point. But you certainly heard a lot of that. Anyway, so Tulsi uh, 
went after Kamala Harris and the establishment today, from what I understand, the liberal establishment is very upset about this. Uh, I've even seen some, I'm trying to track some of this down, some, some uh, scuttlebutt on Twitter about people saying, okay, they're, they're saying crazy stuff. They're going after Tulsi on the whole Assad thing, basically. They're, they're trying to, the, the liberal establishment does not like Tulsi Gabbard, which makes me like her a little bit more. That, and I like the way she says Hawaii. I can't even really say it the way she said Hawaii, you know, Hawaii. She says it a little differently, like a, like a native Hawaiian. Um, I'm going to stop, stop talking about all the great stuff about Tulsi Gabbard. So she went after Kamala Harris, and then Kamala got an opportunity to try to explain what had happened to her, because she got, I think she got kind of blindsided by the whole thing. She wasn't, she didn't seem ready for it at all, and she didn't refute it. Those are serious charges, folks. Suppressed evidence of a person on death row? That's not a little thing. Send people to prison for marijuana when you yourself had smoked marijuana and think it's kind of funny and who cares? Uh, used labor for the benefit of the state for people in prison and kept them in prison longer to use that labor? I mean, these are those are real deal charges. That's not, oh, you know, you said this in a campaign ad 15 years ago. That's a, like, who cares for the most part. These are real decisions that are being called out that she made when she had she had power in the state of California. Here's how she tried to explain herself. Play clip 10. This is going to sound immodest, but I'm obviously a top tier candidate. And so I did expect that I would be on the stage and take hits tonight because there are a lot of people that are trying to make the stage for the next debate. Right. Yeah, it's do, the, for a lot of them, it's do or die. Well, yeah, and especially when people are at zero or one percent or whatever she might be at. And so I did expect that I might take hits tonight. And yet. Didn't explain that away. Didn't didn't manage to uh, tell us all that she had uh, an answer ready for all these different charges. I, mean, I, I think I think we need answers on that stuff, or at least people that are going to be voting in Democratic primaries don't don't they deserve an answer? Uh, so so she you know has the media in her corner, and this is what I meant by pay very close attention to who the journos want on their side. Pay very close attention to who the journos are supporting. Uh, because even among Democrats, they have they have favorites among their children, so to speak. Democrat journos are picking different members of this of this race that they really want to see get all the way through. And so you need to you need to remember that as they're giving you all this coverage. Um, but then you had Tulsi backstage. We have some of this because she she gets attacked by them for this uh for the meeting she had with, what was it again? Uh, with Assad some years ago. Do we? Ha- oh no, I don't think we have that clip. Darn it! Oh no, yes, on MSNBC they went after her. This is what they tend to do. The only thing that she ever gets asked about by the mainstream press is Assad and Syria, and this was no different. I'm, I'm telling you, they don't. They she's not part of their crew. The elite media doesn't like Tulsi. Play 16. So when sitting down with someone like Bashar al-Assad in Syria, do you confront him directly and say, why do you order chemical attacks on your own people? Why do you cause the killings of over half a million people in your country? Look, you know, I, I want to break this down to what we're talking about. I want to break this down to what we're talking about here today, because you're talking about a meeting that took place 
what, three years ago? Well, Congressman, and every you're time leading I come back, no, every well, time I come back here on MSNBC, so, no, but I you guys talk to me about these issues. It sounds like these are in, talking points that Kamala Harris and her campaign are feeding you because she's refusing to address the questions that were posed to her. Of course, every anchor has a different perspective and different questions to ask of you. Every single time for three years. This is where the propaganda comes in. Calling out propaganda on MSNBC. Man, I like it. I like this like I like when my old friend and former colleague Crystal Ball called out MSNBC's Rachel Maddow for all the false promises on Russia. Always give credit where it's due. Always encourage those who are right, even if you think they're usually off on certain things. When they're right, they're right. And Tulsi going after MSNBC. This is fun, folks. This is where we get to enjoy this Democrat-friendly fire that's going on here quite a bit. And this was the best. This was the best stuff from last night, I think. Um, we, we didn't even get through half of. I have so much more of the crazy to talk to you about, but we, we could spend all night doing that. Um, you had someone like, for example, Kirsten. Kirsten Gillibrand is among my least favorite of all these Democrat candidates. I just think she's she's such a phony that she doesn't even really hide the phoniness. Like she, it's, it's as though she figures, I'm a super phony, who cares? Let's just see where I can take this thing. There's, there's no shame about it whatsoever. She'll change whatever position she has to change, say whatever she has to say. I mean, they asked about equal pay last night, and there's so many things that, that came up in this debate. I'm like, what? Equal pay, as the Democrats talk about it, is a lie. It's a lie. It's a lie. It's been disproven a million times. It does not exist Men and women make different choices when you actually control for hours work, choices made, risk in profession, all this. There, this, is other, this is such basic economics. If you could pay somebody for the same work and get a 30% discount, most businesses, their biggest expense is payroll. That's true for most businesses. The payroll is their biggest single expense. If you could save 30%, I mean, a lot of margins in businesses are, you know, 3, 4, 5% in terms of profit margin. If you could save 30% in your workforce, who wouldn't only hire women? It's that straightforward. If this was what they say it is, which is they just pay women less because they pay them less for no reason other than sexism, anybody with with a, a brain would just say, well, I am, I'm going to have an entirely female workforce. I get the exact same work product for the exact same jobs and pay them 70 cents on the dollar. By the way, this is what they actually do with illegal aliens, which is they pay them less than than whatever the uh, prevailing wage would be because they're often paying them off the books, not paying payroll taxes on them, not paying, you know, this was more of an issue in the uh, in the 90s, but it still goes on now, paying them in cash. <sighs> so there was that going on here. Oh, wait, before I, I, I just want a few more of the, of the crazy stuff and then we'll get into some more. Oh, no, Kristen Gillibrand. Kristen Gillibrand. Here's the kind of stuff that she brings to the discussion. Play 11. You are a co-sponsor of the Green New Deal, which includes the guarantee of a job with medical leave, paid vacations, and retirement security for everyone in America. Explain how that's realistic. So the first thing that I'm going to do when I'm president is I'm going to Clorox the Oval Office. The second thing I'm going to do is I will re-engage on global climate change. Re-engage on global. I mean, look, the Clorox line that was prepared, and she was getting ready to give that for sure. Uh, but this is a woman who, if you do a quick Google search, you'll find photos of her 
arm in arm with Bill Clinton, photos of her arm in arm with Harvey Weinstein. Anybody that she has to kiss up to on, on her way uh, up the ranks of power, she's been willing to, to do that. Uh, and she's the one who threw Al Franken under the bus, which I think is so interesting that now they're trying to rehabilitate Franken's image, which is not going to happen, but they're, they're trying. And you see that Kirsten Gillibrand was the one that gave him, she was the one that really gave him the push that sent him over. Um, and then on the, okay, so there's more, I'll, I'll do a little hold off on the crazy. There's a very important study that I want to talk to you about, um, on, cause law enforcement's a, a big, that was the thing from last night that really upset me the most, the trashing of law enforcement, the undermining of cops, especially given some of the things we've seen really interesting study just published. Uh, Heather McDonald has written about it over national review and the long and short of it is that We've been told all this stuff about police shooting unarmed black men and the narrative that does happen. It happens very infrequently. It is uh, overwhelmingly not a function of uh, racism or racial animus based on the based on all the factors. You can look at the numbers. We will walk you through the latest study on this. When we come back, stay with me. Why are you the best candidate to heal the racial divide that exists in this country today, which has been stoked by the president's racist rhetoric? Yeah, first of all, the president's racist rhetoric should be enough grounds for everybody in this country to vote him out of office. First of all, uh, the president is a racist, and that was just one more example of it. We can no longer allow a white nationalist to be in the White House. Are you suggesting that Republicans in Congress around the country are enabling racism. Absolutely. They're enabling all of the wrongdoing that this president has brought with him, from inaction on Russian interference to naked racism. Racism. They say it so much. They accuse so many people of it. They love to say it about this president. Uh, Meanwhile, the president has an agenda that is explicitly, in many ways, directed at helping minority communities. There's the First Step Act, which disproportionately helps uh, African-American and Latino incarcerated uh, individuals. Uh, There's just the economic growth and the focus on trying to help people who are wage earners. But let's put all that aside for a second. There is a clear clear thread of anti-policeism that the Democratic Party has embraced once again. And it's the worst kind of pandering because it's deeply harmful. It erodes the trust that is needed between communities that are plagued by violence and their police, particularly local police. You'll notice James Comey, the FBI, liberals have been pretending for a while now. They love the FBI. They love the intelligence community. I was in the intelligence community when they hated us because of Iraq and WMD. Now they love the intelligence community. How how could Trump ever not trust his intelligence community? Well, gee, I could think of about 100 reasons off the top of my head. But local police, local law enforcement have been targeted by Democrats stretching back in the Obama administration. And it's one of the more shameful chapters of Obama's time as president, the way that he and his administration often spoke of, dealt with and treated law enforcement. And the Black Lives Matter movement was based on lies. Michael Brown's shooting the FBI investor, the Department of Justice investigation of it. It didn't matter that it was all lies. Hands up, don't shoot was a lie. They didn't care. Didn't change the narrative. Didn't change the storyline. Well, 
now we have once again uh, crime and police community relations getting more attention. I, I mentioned to you all that I was in uh, Baltimore yesterday, and there's no way around it. Baltimore is, in some places, a very, very depressing, very unsafe and scary place, and it's it should not be what it is. Um, I think also, am I? I just want to make sure this is correct before I tell you. I saw a link. I saw something today that said that. Uh, here we go. CBS Baltimore representative Elijah Cummings Baltimore home was burglarized. Wow, you cannot make this up. Baltimore police are investigating after the home of Representative Elijah Cummings was broken into early Saturday morning. Burglary occurred around burglary occurred around 3:40 a.m. at his Baltimore home. Uh, wow. Donald Trump responded to the, tweeted about Representative Elijah Cummings has been a brutal bully, shouting and screaming at the great men and women of Border Patrol about conditions at the southern border when actually his Baltimore district is far worse. And more dangerous. His district is considered the worst in the USA. Wow. So Cummings just got his house just got burglarized. That's I'm sorry, but given the conversation about focusing on districts that have high crime rates and and what has Elijah Cummings really done for his district? And those are those you can't make this stuff up, folks. He just got burglarized on Saturday. But there's more of a conversation now than there's been in a while about uh, police and policing as well. Because as I mentioned to you last night, Democrats, I-, I think, really debased themselves. I mean, the way that they speak about law enforcement and people like Beto and Buttigieg and these just these smug elitist liberals who love through the whole, oh, police are so terrible. Look at what they do and all these racist shootings. And, you know, you know that if somebody traipsed across Beto's very large front yard, I'm sure he'd, you know, he'd be very quick to call the cops, right? I mean, these guys, they're such phonies on this issue. And it's so unfair what they say, and there's real consequences. I mentioned this study to you about police-involved shootings and whether or not, by the data, they're racist. You're going to want to hear this. I'll, I'll give you the, the numbers when we come back. Team, just want to give you a heads up. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. Uh, Ovik Roy is going to be joining us in just a little bit here. We're going to do a deep dive on all the health care stuff from last night. So don't think that we've, I know I've been focusing on some other things, but all the health care stuff from last night, we'll do a deep dive in the third hour. I wanted Ovik to join on that because I think he always does a very good job. He's very fair-minded in his approach, too. He's not just like, it's all socialism. So if you really want to know what's going on with that, if you want to be, smarter on the healthcare debate than any of your friends, which I'm sure you already are because you listen to this show, but nonetheless, stay around for the, for the third hour. We'll, we'll be getting into that. I just thought this was a really powerful piece because it did, it did upset me last night, the anti-cop stuff and uh, the Democrats just shameless pandering, acting like police are the problem when you know we, we owe our police a debt of gratitude as a society for being as as uh, professional and decent and courageous as they are. Um, But Heather McDonald, who's great, pulled this piece together. There is no epidemic of racist police shootings. Let me give you some of what she writes here in National Review. The Democratic presidential candidates have revived the anti-police rhetoric of the Obama years. Joe Biden's criminal justice plan promises that after his policing reforms, Black mothers and fathers will no longer have to fear when their children walk the streets of America. 
the threat allegedly coming from cops, not gangbangers. President Barack Obama likewise claimed during the memorial for five Dallas police officers killed by a Black Lives Matter-inspired assassin in July of 2016 that black parents were right to fear that their child could be killed by a police officer whenever he walks out the door. South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg has said that police shootings of black men won't be solved until we move policing out from the shadow of systemic racism. Beto O'Rourke claims that the police shoot blacks solely based on the color of their skin. So yes, there's a tremendous amount of really vicious anti-police, the cops are racist rhetoric. Well, there's a new study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences looking at this. Here are some of the key findings contained in this study. 2015 Justice Department study that it cites uh, found that black officers were 67% more likely than white officers to mistakenly shoot an unarmed black suspect. Hispanic officers were 145% more likely than white officers to mistakenly shoot an unarmed black suspect. So looking at 917 officer-involved fatal shootings, folks, there aren't that many, you know, that's, that's pretty much all of them, I think, stretching back from 2015. Uh, you only have a couple of hundred a year, 100 to 150 a year, I believe, around around that level. Very interesting things from this study is, well, remember all the stuff you're hearing about Black Lives Matter and, you know, I can't breathe, Eric Garner, hands up, don't shoot, all this rhetoric, all this storyline, you, you're told. How How many people would know that 55% of the people shot by fatally by law enforcement are white? So a majority of the people killed by cops are white. Start with that. 27% are black and 19, uh, 19% were Hispanic. Um, between 90 and 95% of the civilians shot since 2015 were either attacking a police officer or attacking another citizen. So they were, these were straight up defensive maneuvers either defending law enforcement personally or defending somebody who was under assault from a person. So the number of shootings in which an officer kills somebody who's unarmed because they think that there is a cell phone or they think it's a gun when it's really a cell phone, that's very rare statistically. There's more. Uh, in the 2015 study, the white victims of fatal police shootings included a 50-year-old suspect in a domestic assault in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, who ran at the officer with a spoon, a 28-year-old driver in Des Moines, Iowa, who exited his car and walked quickly toward an officer after a car chase, and a 21-year-old suspect in a grocery store robbery in Akron, Ohio, who had escaped on a bike and who did not remove his waistband when ordered to do so. Heather writes, had any of these victims been black, the media and activists would probably have jumped on their stories and added their names to the roster of victims of police racism, but because they are white, they are unknown. This entire Black Lives Matter movement of how cops, white cops are shooting black men. It's an epidemic. It's racist. It's happening. It's happening far too frequently all across the country. Systemic race. It's just a lie, folks. The numbers don't bear it out. The reality of police officers across the country working their communities doesn't bear it out. It's just been a lie. The whole thing. Neighborhoods have been burned down because of this lie. Barack Obama played a role in fanning these flames. As president. And now you have Democrat candidates on that stage last night doing exactly the same thing. Pandering. 
and throwing law enforcement under the bus to do so. It's a disgrace. But there's so much from last night. The problem I had, and I knew this would be the case, the problem I had coming on the show today was there was so much crazy. They said so many things that were just, I mean, indefensibly either dishonest or stupid or both that I knew we wouldn't even have full time to go through it all. And they, they had uh, Castro talking about decriminalizing, uh, decriminalizing border crossings. What do they think that's going to do? You can come into the country and it's a civil, it's a civil offense now. These people have no money, folks. So, so does anyone really think that they're coming across the border? They're going to write some huge check as a, no, of course not. It's going to be a civil offense, which means that maybe there'll be a fine attached to it, which means that a judge, an immigration judge will wave it and say, these people are fleeing poverty and they have no money. And even though a lot of them have paid thousands and thousands of dollars to coyotes, to the cartel smuggling organizations, they're not going to, they're not going to be held to account. This is open borders straight up. Castro called it a right-wing talking point. Uh, this is this is where we're heading. I mean, it, it's there's so much from last night that I would. I mean, we could we could even talk about Joe Biden. I mean, he's supposed to be the moderate here, and he talked. I'm sorry, this might have been the single craziest thing from last night. They want to get rid of fossil fuels. They want to eliminate fossil fuel usage. I mean, th- this is so outlandish. To really do this would bring our economy to a screeching halt, okay? This is absolutely nuts. And just for example, Joe Biden, who's supposed to be the moderator, talking about how they want to elim- he wants to eliminate coal. Play clip seven. Thank you, Mr. Vice President. Just to clarify, would there be any place for fossil fuels, including coal and fracking, in a Biden administration? No, we would, we, would, we would work it out. We would make sure it's eliminated and no more subsidies for either one of those. Either any fossil fuel. Any fossil fuel, not just coal, any fossil fuel. We're going to eliminate it under his presidency. This is the sort of thing that you could only say if you think you're speaking to a room full of morons or you don't know anything. The economy could not function, period, without fossil fuels right now. Full stop. Never mind. I mean, we're going to do this to ourselves. Why? The rest of the world's not going to stop using fossil fuels. Look at the percentage of how much we get that's, uh, that's, that's truly renewable energy for our current needs. You're going to try to transition out of this? This is, this is Mao Great Leap Forward level folly. This is completely bonkers. You know, Mao had an idea. Yeah, we're going to industrialize. And you know what? They did manage to industrialize, but they also managed to starve 40 to 60 million people to death. But they did manage to industrialize. I mean, shutting off fossil fuels. By the way, here's Joe Biden in 2012 on fossil fuels. Play eight. Look, it's all of the above for us. We desperately need coal. and We needed to get cleaner and cleaner. We desperately need all the sources of energy. We desperately need fossil fuels or we need to eliminate them. Somehow over the span of of seven years, we've gone from we desperately need fossil fuels to, oh, my gosh, we got to get rid of all of them right away. These these are unserious people making unserious points to an an audience and, and a voting block that really just needs to read a book. And not a Harry Potter book, like read a book that will teach them things. 
And I guess we'll. I got some deep state news I want to get to with you as well. And then there's the voting machine stuff. The Democrats are calling him Moscow Mitch still because he doesn't want to spend eight hundred million dollars on voting. As if that's gonna. I got so much more show to do. We, we gosh, the show's flying by today. I guess when I'm in LA, the weather here rejuvenates me. We'll be right back. So if there was an abuse of the Pfizer process, if there, if there was a misleading of the court by the FBI director, that is a monumental crime, and I would focus on that if that's what happened. The whole idea that you can take something that is marked secret, no foreign, and then just decide on your own to take that out of a skiff, so out of a controlled area, uh, not handled properly, and take to someone's house or a university or wherever these memos went to, you just can't do that. If you purposely take a document, it's one thing if you accidentally walked out with it, but to walk out with something that is clearly marked secret, no foreign, uh, I don't see, I mean, there's been people who have been busted for for way less than that, I will tell you for sure. I mean, you know, rank and file military intelligence people would never get away with, with what Mr. Comey so far is getting away with. Story out today, the Department of Justice will not prosecute James Comey for leaking memos after the uh, IG referral. <sighs> Folks, one of my jobs, I think, here is as somebody who is familiar with the the flabby folds of the federal bureaucracy is to tell you, don't expect there to be real accountability. Don't expect there to be a, a cavalry of, of truth and justice to arrive just in the nick of time to hold these uh, deep state operatives accountable for the abuse of power, for their partisan games. Nope. Probably not going to happen. Uh, James Comey has shown us all who he is, and it's a reminder never to listen to the media when they tell you that somebody who works for the government is just on the up and up, couldn't be more trustworthy. Anybody who has any questions about this person shouldn't be trusted. You shouldn't have trusted James Comey. But they're saying that he is not going to be prosecuted, even though he removed memos and then leaked them, and the memos were later on marked confidential, uh, they're destroying the whole classification process here by bailing out these very senior elite government officials. They're destroying it. I mean, it's it's basically a joke now. Because all you have to do is make sure there's no markings on whatever you're taking, and then it doesn't matter anymore. It's not about the information, right? Hillary, it wasn't marked classified, so she got off. Comey, it wasn't marked classified, but it was classified, but he gets off. Comey's story here is that private discussions that he had in the Oval Office as the FBI director, about FBI business with the President of the United States is not classified. That's an unserious position. Of course it's classified. I used to work with classified information all the time. I would have always assumed that those discussions would have been considered classified. But nope, they're going to let Comey off without any prosecution. The really tough one's going to be, how do they let McCabe off without prosecution? And you know what I'm telling you? I think they're going to. Remember, McCabe was acting FBI director, lied numerous times under oath the inspector general. And they're going to say that they're exercising prosecutorial discretion, blah, blah, blah. Similar cases, when they viewed them, seemed like maybe, and they're just going to... This is the Jussie Smollett, folks. If the people in charge of administering justice don't really care about justice, nothing else matters. They can always find a way to let somebody go. They can always find an excuse to not bring charges, to not prosecute. So Comey's going to skate. 
He's going to skate. I, I think I think McCabe's going to skate too. And what we're going to find out is that there were omissions and there were, there were clear uh, falsehoods that were given to the FISA court to get all this surveillance stuff going. And, the, and then also there were lies to the public about when the Papadopoulos investigation really began and who was involved in it. I've told people back in 2012... That right after Obama was elected, I said, you can forget about any any real justice for what happened in Benghazi, at least in terms of accountability for the people that left our men behind. Uh, I'm telling you right now that the inspector general report Horitz and all this, and I know no one's, I, I should be saying, oh, the, the deep state accountability is coming for the deep state, and it's going to happen, and you know we've got Nunes on it, we've got the inspector general, we've got all these people. A lot of other radio hosts can do that. I'm here to tell you that we may, we will find out more information that I hope will affect some people's perceptions in the electorate in time for next fall's re-election. Hopefully re-election of Trump. But I do not believe that the, the uh, corridors of power will hold their own responsible in any meaningful way. I really don't. I wish I could say otherwise. Comey's going to skate. McCabe's going to skate. Brennan's going to skate. None of them. None of them will face any charges for anything that they did. Uh, and, and in the case of McCabe, that's just flat. That's like Bill Clinton lying under oath and people just saying, yeah, whatever. Broke the law. But as we see with immigration, too, and all the law, uh, all the lies that are told at the southern border by people coming into the country, all the laws that are broken, Democrats think the law is just a suggestion. They're willing to put it aside whenever it suits their fancy. One more thing here. that We've got uh, Ovik going to join in a few minutes to talk about all the healthcare stuff from last night. I really wanted to pack that into one one part of the show. Uh, but just this Moscow Mitch stuff is such a disgrace. Here's what's really going on, folks. The Democrats tried to tried to ram through uh, using unanimous consent procedure, which is supposed to be for like, hey, can we take a bathroom break today at two o'clock? Okay, everyone in the Senate's cool with that. Uh, unanimous consent is like naming of a post office. It's not stuff that is ever real. They tried to ram through an $800 million million package on election security. And they're claiming that because Mitch McConnell won't let them just do this by unanimous consent without having any normal Senate procedure, that he's Moscow Mitch and he's doing Moscow's bidding. These people are shameless. And the uh, resonance that this has within the media... The magnifying effect that the media is giving this is just despicable. But remember, anything Russia-related, they want to talk about. They they want to make anything Russia a headline. They want to put it in the news cycle because ultimately, they're still obsessed with this idea that Russia gave Trump the last election. And I've been telling you this. They're going to claim, if Trump wins, that Russia helped him again. Why, why wouldn't they? they th- they're, they're calling Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell from Kentucky. They're calling him Moscow Mitch? People are lunatics. So this election security thing has nothing to do with election security. It's just all a a media narrative that's being pushed by the Democrats, and it's all garbage. But let's talk healthcare, folks. Single most important issue according to the polls. Where are the Democrats on that? Ovik Roy, the expert, going to join us in a moment. Not a privilege. I believe that. I will fight for that. Tens of millions of people lose their health insurance every single year when they change jobs, when their employer changes that insurance. If you want stability in the healthcare system, 
If you want a system which gives you freedom of choice with regard to doctor or hospital, which is a system which will not bankrupt you, the answer is to get rid of the profiteering of <laughs> the drug sir. companies and the insurance companies both to Medicare for all. All right, team. So we have a healthcare expert, friend of the show, joining us now. The one and only Ovik Roy is in the house, or technically on the line. He is from, uh, well, he's the president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. He knows healthcare backwards and forwards. Mr. Ovik Roy, good to have you back, sir. Hey, Buck. How's it going? That's good, man. So let's let's just get to this. What is this? Who has the single craziest plan of the Democrats of these last two debates this week? Whose plan is the is is the most fatally flawed, or is that even a distinction that's possible to make? Yeah, it is a distinction you could make, and and the champ has to be Bernie. I mean, Bernie's plan is totally insane, totally unworkable. Would be complete chaos for the healthcare system. Why? Tell me why. Uh, so, I really want because libs freak out. They say, "Oh, Sweden does it." Why is Bernie's plan a disaster? Well, it all comes down to the fact that what there are a lot of things wrong with the U.S. healthcare system. A lot of things we need to improve. Healthcare is too expensive. All that. But what Bernie's plan would do is basically make illegal private health insurance. So there's about, depending on how you count it, 180 million Americans with private health insurance of about total of 330 people who live here. So you basically take all of their health insurance and make it illegal and replace it with something that Bernie promises is better. Now, you know, whether whatever you think of Bernie's ability to make promises like that, the fact is you're asking 180 million Americans to take a pretty huge risk with their health care. And that is, and that's aside from the fact that the plan would cost thirty-two trillion, with a T, trillion dollars over ten years. Now, just to put that in context, Buck, Obamacare, which we, which some people talked about as the government takeover of the healthcare system, Obamacare only increased federal spending by two trillion dollars over ten years. Bernie's plan increases federal spending by thirty-two trillion dollars over ten years. So that tells you the scale. Bernie's plan is 15 times or 16 times bigger than Obamacare in its ambition and its reach to effectively abolish the role of the private sector in health insurance. Now, he says that there'll be a savings of, I think it was $500 billion uh, just from the, the elimination of health insurance companies and their big, fat, bloated profits. What can you tell us about that? One, the the truth of you know the the insurance companies because my personal experience is that where you get really where you get really dinged badly in healthcare is hospitals and sometimes in in uh, in medicine pharmaceuticals. Uh, but obviously, people have bad stories about their health insurance in the past. How much can you actually save from doing that? And how bad are the big bad profit seeking health insurers in this whole process? Well, Gerald Ford once said, you know, if you, if you think healthcare is expensive now, wait until it's free. I mean, the way, the way to think about Bernie's plan is it's kind of like me at an open bar versus a cash bar. If I'm at a cash bar and I'm paying for every drink I order, you know, I'm going to be mindful of what I'm paying. You know, I might order the Bud Light instead of the single malt scotch or whatever, and I'm certainly not going to have five drinks unless I'm, I'm really depressed or something. But an open bar, you know, all bets are off. I can do whatever, right? And that's Bernie's health care plan. Bernie's health care plan is a $32 trillion open bar where you can consume 
not only the health care that you might actually genuinely need, but a lot of things you might not. But because you're not paying for it, you're like, what the hell? Why not? You know, it's free. And not only that, the hospitals and the drug companies and everyone else can say, hey, well, now that the taxpayer is paying for all this, let's raise our prices because the actual patient doesn't care what it costs because it's free to him. So if we pay, if we charge the patient 20000 bucks instead of 200 bucks for the same service, he's not going to care. He's not paying for it. The taxpayers are paying for it. And that's how you get to a system that's completely unaffordable. Now, there are ways to tackle that problem. You could have price controls. You could ration access to expensive care. You could do a lot of things from a, in a government-run system to try to counter that open bar mentality. But Bernie's plan doesn't do that. Bernie's plan is simply everything should be free to the patient, and we'll talk about how to control costs later. And so it's much more, just, it's much more there's much greater largesse from the government in Bernie's plan than even there is in Medicare. He keeps saying Medicare for all, but Medicare has cost sharing. Medicare has states kicking in money. Individuals have to pay parts of it. doesn't cover everything. So what Bernie's talking about is even a level beyond Medicare. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the real dishonesties in the Bernie plan. It's not actually Medicare. What you know, He uses Medicare for all because he knows that Medicare is popular and that people understand what Medicare is. But Bernie's plan is not Medicare. As you said, Medicare has premiums. Medicare has copays. Medicare has deductibles. Medicare has private health insurance. More than a third of the people on Medicare have private health plans. And by the way, the number of people with traditional single-payer Medicare is actually declining, while the number of people with private Medicare, private health insurance Medicare, is exploding because the private plans are doing a better job of delivering the Medicare benefit in a cost-effective way. So Bernie's plan wouldn't just abolish employer-based coverage or other forms of private insurance. It would also abolish the private insurance that is the increasingly the most popular part of Medicare itself. Um, so, you know, so th- there's all sorts of problems with, with Bernie's plan. But, you know, I don't want to get too fixated on Bernie's plan in this sense, but for the time that we have, because there's, there's a kind of a, a secret uh, a trick going on here, which is now the public option. The public option which was too radical for Obamacare. You couldn't get 60 Democrats in the Senate to support the public option because it was too left-wing. Now the moderate Democrats, the responsible, prudent, pragmatic Democrats are the ones supporting a public option. And so all the uh, fire, all the incoming is being uh, drawn by the Bernie plan, and that's making a lot of these more these other plans that are more incremental in advancing government control of the health care system seem reasonable by comparison. And by the way, well, what is the difference for everyone listening between uh, between uh, the Medicare for All plan and having a public option? Yeah, great question. So a public option basically says that there's going to be a Medicare-like option for people who have private insurance. Now, so let's say you, you get insurance from your employer today. The value of that insurance is deducted from your paycheck before you get it pre-tax. Um, Medicare, if it's a Medicare-like plan, could be structured so that it's cheaper to you and to the government uh, than uh, than your employer-based coverage. The idea would be there would be an option. You could have an optional government-run health care plan, but you wouldn't be forced to choose it. You could keep your private health insurance if you want, but there would be a government-run plan that would effectively compete with your private health insurance, whether in 
the individual market where you buy insurance on your own or the employer-based market. So that's something that uh, is more pragmatic. It's not insane in the, in the way that Bernie's plan is. It theoretically could, uh, you know, uh, work in the sense of it wouldn't be uh, uh, dramatically disruptive to the existing system, but it would represent an incre- incremental increase in the role of government control of the health insurance system. Now, would would employers be tempted then to say, well, we're not going to give our, our employees health insurance anymore. Just go get yourself the public option, folks. Some might be. Some might be. Particularly, I think, smaller businesses or startups or you know, entrepreneurial companies that, that, that don't want to take on that responsibility. I think the big Fortune 500 type companies will still offer employer-based coverage because they see it as a, a retention tool and they've got the money floating around in their, in their income statements to be able to do that. Uh, but I, I think a lot of smaller companies would say, you know what, health insurance is too expensive, it's too volatile as, a, as an expense for us, let's just let the government do it. And that's what I mean when I say it's incremental, less disruptive, more gradual, but the end result is more people on government-run health insurance. And, and let me ask you, I mean, is that the... You know, Kamala Harris kind of has this 10-year transition plan that she sounds like she's one foot in, one foot out of Medicare for all. Uh, you know, are there any Democrats that are in that top tier of five? You know, put aside actually some of the sane ones like Delaney and some of the others that can do math. Uh, are, are any of the top five or six contenders uh, coming up with plans that worry you because they sound really uh, they sound realistic enough that they could actually sell this to the public and make it happen? Joe Biden. So Joe Biden is basically, that's his plan. His plan is build on the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, introduce a public option, uh, but otherwise be, be modestly, you know, don't, don't be super disruptive, only, only make incremental changes. And that's what I mean when I say, like, all this, you know, you watch Fox News every day. It's all about socialism. It's all about single parents. It's all about burning. And look, Bernie's plan is totally crazy, so I understand that. It kind of triggers us to talk about Bernie's plan. But at the end of the day, uh, if, if all we're doing is complaining about Bernie care and we're ignoring the, the smarter and more prudent Democrats that are talking about gradually expanding government control of the health insurance system, we're making a strategic mistake. We're falling Speaking into of Ovik Roy, he is the president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Ovik, can you stick around for a second? Okay. All right, guys, we're back here with Ovik Roy. He's the president for research on equal uh, at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. All right, Ovik. So, so you were just telling us before, and I wanted to get a little deeper into this, uh, that you have Joe Biden, who's got this incremental plan with, with that that institutes a public option that builds on Obamacare. I mean, just one thing for for context here: isn't Obamacare really just a shell of what the law was supposed to be the first time around? I mean, what, weren't they initially going to uh, affect the overall health care market, but then they just kind of went down to the individual market. I mean, before we get to Biden and the public option, how much of Obamacare has even really been enacted? Well, I mean, honestly, most of it, there's some key changes, right? So the repeal of the individual mandate is an important change, and there's some other tweaks here and there. But the fact is, you know, it's a 2,000-page bill. 1,990 of those pages are still the law of the land. So um, most of Obamacare is still is still active and still out there. It's just uh, a lot of a lot of wonky stuff that maybe doesn't get as much coverage in the mainstream media. 
And so it really did mostly affect the individual market, right? Mostly. Mostly, yeah. I mean, they're, they're also, remember that, that the, uh, so basically the way Obamacare works is that it, it affects the individual market, to your point, people who buy health insurance on their own who don't get it from their employer. It also massively expands Medicaid, so that really affects state budgets in particular, because states are having to take on these massive liabilities of expanding their Medicaid programs. It increased taxes by $1.2 trillion. All those tax increases pretty much are all in the books. So there's a lot of stuff in Obamacare, uh, and, and it also did apply some regulations, new regulations to the employer-based market that weren't there before. So it did affect pretty much everybody in one way or another, but you're right that the most dramatic change, excuse me, changes were to people who bought insurance, buy insurance on their own. And those changes are, by and large, still in the books, except for the repeal of the individual mandate. So Joe Biden is the leading candidate right now for the Democrats by all the polls. A lot of people say that he's just going to have to just ride this out and he'll be the front runner, he'll be the nominee. If he did become the president and the public option, let's just say the Congress was able to do this, became Democrat majority, etc. If the public option becomes the law of the land, how does the public option go bad? Well, there actually, you know, there's an optimistic case and a pessimistic case for how the public option would work. We've talked about the pessimistic case, which is that um, uh, the, the public option would gradually increase its market share because it, it involves price controls and other regulations that stack the deck in its favor. There's an optimistic case, though, and that is to point to what I just described in the, in the last segment about Medicare Advantage. In the Medicare program, if you're over 65 today, you have a choice between the traditional Medicare program, which is a single-payer, government-run program. You could call it a public option, even. And the private health insurance pro, uh, plan that you can buy through Medicare Advantage. And over time, the Medicare Advantage plans, the private plans, have successfully competed against the public option in Medicare and are basically gaining market share every day. So it's possible that even if there's a public option in the rest of the health insurance market, that the private plans adapt to that and uh, and and actually do a better job of competing uh, against the private. So, so there is a case way. to be made that the public option might actually not be a disaster, is what you're telling me. Yeah, I am. I mean, it, it's not necessarily a disaster, but it definitely is an expansion of the role of government in the private uh, health insurance market. One more for you, Ovik. Why, you know, when you come up against a lot of very committed liberals, uh, people on the left, they'll, they'll just say to you, you know, every other, you know, this is actually a Bernie Sanders line, every other developed country in the world has figured this out, and we haven't. What, what is your answer to that? I mean, why, why can't we be Sweden when it comes to health care? Well, broadly speaking, I agree with Bernie Sanders on that. We are the wealthiest country in the world. We actually spend more on government health care in America per capita than most of those other countries, including Sweden. And we don't have everyone with health insurance. And that's because for 75 years, decisions that in particular Congress has made that have driven the cost of health care out of control have made it impossible for, any, for, for tens of millions of Americans to afford health insurance. So this is the problem is that, you know, it's not, we don't have a free market capitalist healthcare system today. This is where Bernie is wrong. Bernie's argument is that the reason that 30 million people are uninsured in America is because of capitalism. No. The reason why 30 million people are uninsured in America and why 80 million more struggle to afford their health insurance premiums every month 
is not because of capitalism. It's because of federal intervention in health insurance markets that have distorted them so beyond recognition that nobody can aff- that so many people can't afford their health insurance. So we need to reform that. And I think conservatives make a mistake when they say, you know, the current system is a free market and we're against everybody having health insurance because that's obviously social. No. There are countries out there, Switzerland is an example, Singapore is another, that have more market-oriented systems than the U.S. has, and they cover everybody because health insurance in those countries is cheaper because they didn't mess up their health insurance markets the way we have. Ah, look at that. So we can we can be Sweden is what you're telling me, but we'd have to pay much higher taxes. No, actually, actually, there is a way, and you know, my think tank, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, we've put out a plan called Affordable Health Care for Every Generation. You can find it on our website, which is freeop.org, F-R-E-O-P-P.org. That outlines exactly, actually in a lot of detail, not just an outline, but in deep detail, how you could take the gamish of the health care system we have and reform it in a way in which it's entirely about private health insurance and private choices and individual choice and markets but where everybody in America could afford a health insurance plan and have health insurance, and no one would risk going bankrupt because of uh, medical bills. You can do that. It's a, so this is, this is the key thing. Republicans and conservatives should not concede to the left that the only way to achieve universal health insurance is to have a government-run system. We would never say that about cell phones. We would never say you have to have a government plan for every American to have a smartphone. We would never say you need, there needs to be a government plan so every American can have a laptop. So why is it that we've accepted the argument the only way for every American to have health insurance is through government? Capitalism, free markets, innovation, those are the things that make health care less expensive, uh, just the way they make everything else in our lives less expensive. Ovik Roy, everybody, the guy knows the healthcare stuff, as you've probably figured out by now. He's the president at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, Free Op. Dot org. Ovik, great to have you all, my friend. Thanks for sharing your expertise. Thanks, Doug. Team, millennials are supposed to be a bunch of commies in the making. We always hear about how the millennials, of which I am a gray beard, as you know, but the younger millennials, the young whippersnapper millennials, they love socialism. Well, not all of them. That's the good news. We have Morgan Zeggers joining us now. She's the founder and CEO of Young Americans Against Socialism. Morgan, great to have you on. Thank you for having me, Buck. I'm glad to be here. All right, so tell me, what, what, first off, what was your reaction to the debates as a young person that's going to be saddled with the crazy debts that these libs want to run up? What do you think? You know, as an American, definitely disappointed. Um, as somebody who pays attention to politics, definitely not shocked at all. I mean, that's the same rhetoric they've been using forever, promising a lot of free stuff. Sounds really great. And it's definitely misleading this country and the youth into thinking that socialism is a good idea. Wow. And tell me a bit about your organization, uh, Young Americans Against Socialism. How long have you guys been around? What are you doing? Yep, so we actually launched this month, Young Americans Against Socialism. I'm very proud of it. Uh, for me, I'm very frustrated by the fact that a majority of my generation, young Americans, would now choose socialism over capitalism. I think it's complete nonsense. And so what I also know about millennials is that 90% of them have social media accounts. So I'm going to change the way young Americans think. We are doing this. It's a movement. We have been traveling the country, interviewing people who have escaped from socialism. People, we have somebody who windsurfed from Cuba to the Florida Keys across the ocean 90 miles just to escape the hell that socialism is. And we're putting those powerful stories on short two-minute viral videos, and they're going to spread like wildfire on social media, 
and completely change the way my generation thinks about this ideology. And that is going to save the future of this country. Have you uh, have you had any success in trying to convince some of your millennial peers to uh, give up the hammer and sickle? Unfortunately, it's very, very tough. And so I would love to say, you know, I'm going to deal a swift death blow to socialism. But unfortunately, it's, it's going to be a long haul. It's going to be a fundamental change that we're going to have to work on, changing the hearts and minds. It's what inspired me, actually. I, I went to American University in Washington, D.C., and the last year that I lived down there, I moved into a house off campus, and some of the girls I hadn't met yet. So I went around, and I introduced myself to some of the girls, and I walk into this one girl's room, and I look on the wall, and I'm like, oh, that's a little weird. It looks like Fidel Castro. That looks like uh, Mao Zedong. Uh, Karl Marx. Oh, my God. Uh, and I'm looking, and I'm looking, and I'm seeing Stalin, Lenin on her wall. And I go, uh, what's that? <laughs> and she looks at me, and she goes, oh, I'm a communist. Well, there and, we go. You... Uh, yep. Uh-huh. And so that right there, I learned so much. I'm really thankful for that experience because I learned that my communist roommate, as insane as I thought her ideas were, she ended up being one of the kindest friends I ever had. And that's the lesson about my generation. Like a lot of people in my generation, my roommate loved her friends, her family, her community, and her country. The only problem is that she truly, deep down in her heart, believed that socialism and communism and ideas rooted in Marxism were going to change the situation that many Americans well, are I, facing. And make I, I hope you have a lot of success with the organization, changing people's minds about that. Morgan Zeggers, everybody, founder and... CEO of Young Americans Against Socialism. Follow her on Twitter. Morgan, thank you so much. Thanks, Buck. Have a nice day. Ain't no party like a Team Buck party, because a Team Buck party don't stop. Yeah, we got Buck turned up to 11. It's time for Roll Call. Indeed it is. Roll Call time, everybody. Here I am, about to do the Roll Call in Los Angeles, no less. Very exciting, very exciting stuff. Out here in La La Land, in preparation for the Bill Maher Show tomorrow, um, I can tell you that it is going to be feisty. So uh, that that is definitely the case with that show, I think... Uh, yeah, it should be really good. Looking forward to it. So please do. I, I like having the team backing me up, even if I can't see you while we're doing it. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Uh, here we go. Let's get to it. Brian, last week you mentioned nicknames for Mark and Mike, but you referenced Snurdly as a nickname. I believe it is Bo Snurdly, and he played in the NFL. Um, well, you may know something that I don't know, but I know Mr. Snurdly personally, and I know his real name, so I don't know. I, I, I think I, I don't want to give away any trade secrets, though. I'm not really sure what's going on here, but, uh, hmm, just going to leave it there. I can tell you this, Mr. Snurdly is a great man. He's a, a great, great patriot, uh, has given me fantastic advice on radio, how to do radio in the past, and uh, he's a really, really solid dude. Sean! Right. Where did the billions of federal dollars go, Sean? I I don't know which billions you're talking about, but the government spends a lot of our money, and so yeah, could be any number of things. I think that's I think that's fair to say. 
Uh, let's see here. Russell writes, I've seen towns on The Walking Dead that then uh, that looked better than your shot of Baltimore. So, you know, I showed you this stuff from Baltimore yesterday on, on Instagram. And those of you listening, team, I need you all to follow me on Instagram, okay? Because I'm using it more and more. I'm, I'm trying to be one of the cool kids that knows the Instagram and can use it to communicate with all of you. So it's just Buck Sexton on Instagram, the only one, the one and only. Although there are other Buck Sextons running around, believe it or not. Uh, but so here's here's the truth about Baltimore. I've I spent a lot of time there. Um, at least for me, I mean, I spent a day a week in Baltimore for the better part of six months, maybe getting getting close to a year. All in, at least at least for about six months, I'd say I was there once a week, all day. And it's not a very big city, so you spend enough time there. And and I've been there for other events and things than just doing work. But you spend enough time there, you get a pretty good feel for it. There are, and I, I will tell you this in all honesty, there are some beautiful parts of Baltimore. Uh, the harbor is very nice. It's a little touristy and, and built up. The harbor is very nice. Uh, but the, oh gosh, I'm actually forgetting the name of the of the area now. But there's one area that's very close to the train station that has these beautiful buildings. And it's re- really architecturally interesting. The problem with Baltimore is you walk five minutes. And I mean five minutes in the wrong direction in many parts of town, including nice ones, and you're in a very bad part of town. And when you have a city of that size and you have uh, that kind of poverty and violence condensed into a a, a relatively small area, what it really means is that there's no part of the city that ever feels particularly safe. Bad things happen in Baltimore, all over Baltimore, because the, you know, drug dealers, gangbangers, the people that are tearing that community apart... They don't just stay on the one corner where they're selling drugs. They obviously move around the city. It's not a very big city. And so you feel less safe in neighborhoods in Baltimore than you would, I think, in other cities where it's just more spread out. And and the separation between a good area and a bad area is a little bit more pronounced. Uh, In Baltimore, you're you're on a block where there are nice houses that people are clearly taken care of and take pride in. You walk two blocks and it is all vacants and people selling drugs in broad daylight on the street which is what I saw. What's so interesting to me is that there were so many people in Baltimore who were longtime residents. I actually had dinner with, with someone who and his wife were both born and raised in Baltimore. And so they've lived there for going on 50 years. And they said, it's been a mess for, it's just been a mess forever. Uh, there's never been good government in Baltimore. It's never worked the way it should as a, as a city. And it's a shame because there's a lot of good stuff there. Uh, and I know that right now you're, people are just breaking this down into, into the binary, but it's on the water. It uh, was a very active port. There's some very beautiful old buildings there. I'll tell you this, if you're willing to deal with the high crime and the the uh, dysfunction of the city, you can buy up some really nice property in Baltimore for not a lot of money. Unlike in D.C., where, I mean, it's better than New York. But all right, I'm getting off the, uh, getting off the rails a little bit there. But yeah, I, I was in Baltimore yesterday. And it was very interesting. Uh, Mark asks, who books your show guests? That's, that's producer Mike. Producer Mike is the, he is the alpha and the omega of show guests as far as guests are concerned. So you just got to get in touch with producer, uh, producer Mike and he, he determines which guests live and which guests don't on air, so to speak. Uh, let's see what we have here. Jeff. Whoa. Buck, my name is Jeff. I'm a truck driver. Listen to the podcast so I know I'm a day late. 
I'm also an Air Force veteran. You were talking about concealed carry and how it changes the equation. I was talking to my brother down in Alabama about the shooting in Gilroy. He said, yeah, that happened here. As soon as that guy started firing his weapon, half the people at that place would have drawn down on him. You look as there's not a lot of mass shootings in Alabama and Georgia in the Deep South. They all have concealed carry. It's not hard to get one down here. A little bit of a background check. Two weeks, you have your concealed carry license. Keep up the fight. Shields high. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much, man. Look, the the best evidence of this that I can point to is is all compiled in John Lotz. And John's, John's something of a friend. I know John from his work. Uh, more guns, less crime. And it's a very straight. It's a very straightforward proposition. It, it entirely makes sense. Put yourself in the shoes of being a criminal. Who do you want to target? People that can fight back or people that are helpless? What areas do you want to go? This is why the mass shootings so often happen in, in gun-free zones, as we know. Because if you want to do a mass shooting, you want to go somewhere where you're going to not come up against any unexpected resistance from a good guy or gal with a firearm. There's very clear correlations here. We can all understand why it happens the way that it does. And on concealed carry, you know, just just think about that process for a robbery on the street, a carjacking, home invasion. Somebody has a handgun that they know how to use. Uh, that really makes it a whole lot less fun to be a carjacker or be a home invader, doesn't it? And if you don't know if someone has one or not, that then at least makes you perhaps think twice about what your illegal plans may be. And that's how it breaks down. And also, you got to think about it this way. We may not have a media that likes to cover it when there's a bad guy who tries to break in the front door and, and gets you know lit up by a, a law-abiding civilian who's got a, you know, a SIG or a Glock or whatever. Um, the bad guys hear about that. The word gets around. So... Look, and this is what the evidence says. I know people say, oh, everyone thinks they're John Wayne. And it's, no, it's not that. It's just, you know, put yourself in the, just do scenario analysis in your own head. It's one of the most important ways, I think, that you can understand a lot of different policy uh, policy disputes, but especially in self-defense situations. Put, put yourself in the shoes of the bad guys and then put yourself in your shoes. Uh, let's see what's next on the roll call. Sandy, we need to explain the word socialism for if they control all your money, health care, taxes, housing, etc., the more control they have of your life. Well, Sandy, that's why I'm writing a book on socialism that I'm hoping you will all buy and you'll enjoy reading. It will be out by the either the end of this year or early next year. I think it will be uh, a fun read for you. It's just kind of doing a whole soup to nuts American socialism. That's the that's the plan. I'm already... Uh, I would like to say I'm I'm have I'm I'm deep in the middle of the draft right now. So I've got a couple of months here to get a final draft in and then we got to do some edits, but it's happening. It is happening. And yes, I will explain socialism in that and I try to explain socialism in this as well. Um Martha writes, "What is that way cool introductory music to your Freedom Hut segment? I must know it. Wonderful show, Buck, my fave." Well, Martha, you have great taste in radio shows. And as for producer Mark, do you have any idea like which one she likes? I don't know which one we're talking about here. I don't know. We play a lot of music. And we play a lot. You know, I mean, DJ Mark is spinning all kinds of the, the hippest, hottest tracks. Yo. Um, have you actually, do you DJ? We've had, we've, had, we've had producers in the past who were DJs on the side. Are, are you also a DJ or are you really just like an audio guy? I'm just like, like you an love audio, audio guy. You're an audio guy. You love audio. You don't, you're not spinning mad beats on the weekends? Uh, sometimes, but not as a traditional DJ. Oh, okay, nice. You a karaoke guy, Mark? No, I, I. You don't want me singing. 
Stand by your man. We could definitely do some bad buck karaoke in the Freedom Hut at some point, but then everybody would turn off the station. That would be very sad. So we won't we won't do that. That was stuck in my head, by the way, because some of you are thinking, why would you start singing that? It is in the movie GoldenEye, which I love mostly because of the Nintendo 64 video game based on it that I played endless hours of with my brothers growing up. And producer Mark, you love GoldenEye. Come on. Of course. Yeah. It's like, it was at the time it was the greatest video game in my opinion. Video game playing experience probably of all time. And the uh, Russian mobster guy, whose name I can't remember now, uh, has a a mistress who is singing karaoke terribly, and she's singing Stand By Your Man. Uh, and it, it is actually Mini Driver, for those of you that really are into 90s movies. Early early Mini Driver before she became a, a, a surprising starlet in Hollywood. I don't know how that really happened, but I mean, she was in Goodwill Hunting, and anyway. Um, we got a little more roll call here. Hey, everybody, right now, please, before you forget, set your DVR for Bill Marshall tomorrow or watch it live, 10 o'clock Eastern on HBO. I, I need the team pulling for me because it is, I'm going, look, it's it's liberal ground. You're going to liberal territory. There's no question about it. And I haven't had that real uh, opportunity in a while. I used to do it all the time at CNN, but this is going to be a little different because they're a live audience, which changes the game up a little bit. Uh, Terry writes, Hey, Buck, I was just listening to your show when you covered busing. My family is from the Charlestown neighborhood of Boston. One issue that never got mentioned was in Boston, certain areas had the vocational school. Charlestown was the electrical school. So if my cousin from Charlestown wanted to become an electrician, he stood a very good chance of being denied attending since he lived in Charlestown. So the busing denied not only a quality education, but a potential career opportunity. There was a decent movie about busing in Charlestown and Roxbury called The Common Ground. It showed how well to do how well to do liberals pitted poor whites against poor blacks. Your show is the only one where the other side, poor whites, uh, showed that they, that they were victims of this of this too. Shields high, Terry. Well, thank you, Terry. And that's I knew that it was more complicated than liberals were. A, a lot of times, I'll tell you this. A lot of times, my research and and my political philosophy uh, is guided at some level by I know that what they're telling us is not true. And that's really the first step in my process. I know that the official narrative is not, it's either a lie or it's only part of the story. And with busing, it just seemed so obvious to me that, okay, here's something that's very complicated that went on for a very long time. And the moment you try to question it, they say, racist. Well, that's always a tip off because there's just no way that that was the only reason that, that the racism was the only reason people had concerns about it. And that's why I went through the reality of busing with you on the show. There was good, and there was bad from it. All right, team. Uh, tomorrow, because I have to do Bill Maher, I am going to be off. Uh, so we're going to have the godfather, Mike Opelka, who was one of my first guests back when I first started the Saturday show. So we all we all have some love because Godfather was there in the very beginning. Uh, so he'll do a great job in on the show. So listen to Godfather, and then as soon as you're done listening to the show, you can tur- uh, turn on HBO, and I'll be on at 10 o'clock Eastern, real time with Bill Maher. Team. Now more than ever, Shields High.